Hello listeners, I just have a quick announcement to make before we get started today. Play That Rock and Roll is now a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon is a large network of music-related podcasts, and I'm a regular listener of many of their shows. In fact, I've collaborated with some of them, so it feels great to be included alongside them now on the network. Today, we are starting an exciting new chapter for this show, which will include more collaborations with top-notch content creators, and that will certainly motivate me to up my game with what I do here. So thank you to Pantheon for bringing us on board, and thanks to everyone who has tuned in over these past few years. But don't touch that dial. We've only just started. We have a lot of great content on the way for this year and the years to come. And you can find it all over at Pantheon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome back to Excitable Boys, our mini-series that takes a look back at the dirty life and times of Warren Zevon. In our last episode, we discussed Warren's early 80s studio releases, his outstanding live album, Stand in the Fire, his partnership with R.E.M. in their formative years, his struggle to achieve sobriety, and his late 80s comeback album, Sentimental Hygiene. Today we pick up with Warren in the final months of 1989, during which he released perhaps his strangest and most self-indulgent project ever, a science fiction concept album called Transverse City. Sit back and watch it run straight down Despite the best efforts of heavy hitters like David Gilmour and Neil Young, this album sold worse than his previous work. So Warren would open the 1990s with a search for a new record label. Unfortunately, convincing even a small indie label to sign Warren would require some rather underhanded dealings from his manager, which involved exploiting Warren's past relationship with his friends in R.E.M. In late 1990, a slapdash collection of unpolished demos that Warren recorded with the guys from R.E.M. some four years beforehand hit the stores, much to R.E.M.'s, as well as Warren's, dismay. This cynical attempt to boost Warren's profile did little to impress the public, but it did sell just enough copies to get Warren a new deal. His first release from that deal would arrive just a year later in October 1991. 
care who gets hurt. Although a decent record, Mr. Bad Example sold worse than its predecessors, which resulted in Warren's new label adjusting their strategy for him. His next project would be a collection of live performances from Warren's 1992 tour. This would be an acoustic collection as well, since Warren's budget did not include enough for, well, a band. Uh, Werewolves of London. The commercial low point for Warren's entire career, let alone the decade we're discussing today, was 1985's Mutineer, which was recorded entirely in Warren's home studio. Mutineer is one of Warren's most heartfelt releases, but unfortunately, that did not result in increased sales. Grab your coat, let's get out here. And once again, Warren would find himself without a label or even proper management. Warren spent the latter half of the 90s touring small venues and playing corporate gigs. But he was able to keep his profile up by showing off his comedy chops as part of cameos on some TV sitcoms. He was also able to rely on his old friend and advocate, David Letterman, for regular late-night appearances. You are, to me, Mr. Rock and Roll. It's not, it's not Z for Zorro, it's Z for Zivon. Just remember that. Warren's career was in a rough spot at the end of the millennium, but he wasn't done yet. So without further ado, let's take a look back at perhaps the most underrated stretch of Warren's career. Get yourself a big dish of beef chow mein, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle Warren's music and stories from this era. This is Excitable Boys Part 3, Warren Zevon in the 1990s. Excitable boy, they all said, well he's just an excitable boy. left off on this last time. Warren Zevon had an album called Sentimental Hygiene, which comes out right at the end of the 80s. It was not his last 80s record. We're actually starting off this 90s pod with an 80s album, but that just fits nicely into our three studio albums per episode formula we've been doing so far. So we're actually opening up today with an album Warren released in late 1989. But the last album he put out in 1987, Sentimental Hygiene, was basically presented as like his comeback. He had found sobriety. He had a lot of his rock star friends on it. It came out in a time where there was a lot of 60s and 70s artists having commercial resurgences. Yeah. And I think when I was listening to it, I expected to hear or find out that, oh, this was also a nice little commercial bump at the end of the 80s for him. And uh, it wasn't. Like all of his other albums, <laughs> it freaking tanked. And unfortunately, that trend is not going to change as we move into the 90s here. Commercial success, which has been an issue that Warren has struggled with his entire career, 
is going to get to some pretty extreme depths here. Otherwise, the big news we talked about last time was that Warren had been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We can give a quick update on that. He is currently in third place of the fan vote. He is quite a distance behind George Michael and Cyndi Lauper, but he also has a comfortable lead over Iron Maiden, Soundgarden, and Willie Nelson, who have the next amount of votes after him. And I think that's also going to keep as well. Like I think he's pretty secure in his spot for third place in the fan vote. So let's get started with his first album that we're going to talk about today, Transverse City, which was released in October 1989. This is an album that was inspired by, of all things, cyberpunk. Specifically, the William Gibson cyberpunk novel, Neuromancer. Okay? This is so (laughs) out of left field and such a bizarre thing to make an album on. But not an isolated incident, because if you didn't know, Billy Idol released an album that was inspired by the exact same thing. It was called Cyberpunk. That came out a couple of years later in 1993. Both of these albums are two of the dorkiest things I've ever listened to. (laughs) And both pretty good, actually. I I think definitely Transverse City comes off better than Cyberpunk. I prefer Transverse City over Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk had that, like, ten-minute version of uh, Heroin. Bizarre. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely... Why was that even on that? I, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of the people who played on Transverse City before we get to a couple of the songs here. As is standard for Warren, this is a star-studded ordeal. Among the personnel on this record are Mike Campbell, Ben Montench, and Howie Epstein, all from the Heartbreakers, Tom Petty's band. You have Jack Cassidy and Yorma Kakonen from the Jefferson Airplane, or Hot Tuna, whatever your preference is. <laughs> you got Jerry Garcia. You got David Gilmore. This is insane. Yeah. <laughs> this is, these are absolute icons of classic rock. I have to wonder if like any of these guys had read Neuromancer, or if any part of them was just like, oh boy, this is kind of embarrassing. Well, Neuromancer, I mean, was a very popular book at the time. Yeah. So I, I imagine that there may have been some of them that read the book. Sure. Maybe a David Gilmore or a Jerry Garcia. Yeah, and Gilmore seems to be pretty present on this record because he's also in the music video for Run Straight Down. When I think about that enough, I'd rather see it on the news at 11. Sit back and watch it run straight down. was the leadoff single for the album was a blip on the mainstream rock charts and that's the only chart action this album saw this had very limited commercial success we are now entering the most commercially barren stretch of zivon's career personally i think the title track and run straight down are really cool i like how this album opens and i also really like splendid isolation Splendid isolation I don't need no one Splendid isolation I think 
think Splendid Isolation is the song that most Zevon fans identify as their favorites from this record. I definitely think this was well loved. Yeah. And during the COVID lockdowns, oh, the yeah. celebrity chef uh, Elton Brown on his YouTube channel, him and his wife actually did a cover of Splendid Isolation, so I would recommend looking that up. It's actually oh. quite interesting. I, it, it was cool to see, it's especially during uh, what we were all kind of going through at that time. And we're talking like a month in. Well, certainly better for a celebrity to sing than imagine. Yeah. They didn't do like a round robin with a bunch of other celebrities right. either. Is it? No, this is very, this is very organic. It was yeah. not a, yeah. Well, that's fun. <laughs> One song that I think aged pretty well is Networking. Not in the uh, sense of the production on the track. That's definitely dated. But the content of the lyrics are painfully way ahead of its time. I agree with you 100%. But I will say, in light of what happened in Palantine oh with the, the train yeah. uh, overturning, and then subsequently with them trying to clean it up and the, <laughs> the truck also crashing and dumping out contaminated earth. Uh, I would say Run Straight Down actually has oh. almost more of a... I truly love Run Straight Down both in terms of the lyrics and also the song itself I feel is just absolutely on point. Gilmore is really good with the guitar. Oh, yeah. Uh, too. I mean, that's just... Anytime you got Gilmore playing guitar, you have to pay attention. Album closes with a track called Nobody's in Love This Year. I don't want to be Mr. Vogelbaum I don't want to get hurt I don't want to be Mr. Vogelbaum I don't want to be the one who gets I think that's one of the most beautiful songs of his discography. I love the line, I don't want to be Mr. Vulnerable. You know, this is billed as like a concept album with him, but it is still very personal. I agree with you, and I, I will say this. One of the things I truly love about Nobody's in Love this year is how transactional he makes love seem. When he talks about maturity and all these other things, he's talking about like a bank statement. <laughs> But I also think it has to do with the actual, the concept of the album, which is mm. we've reached a point where that, that is what love looks like in this it, time period. It's, yes. This is a, yeah. In this cyberpunk future, love itself is commodified. It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a real, I love that song. I'm with you on that. What are your feelings on Long Arm of the Law? Oh, great tune. It's the law. 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 And what he would do in concert for the tour supporting this album is he would play the title track Run Straight Down and Long Arm of the Law as a medley. And he'd play them all in one piece. And that's how they're presented on the album. So I, I think that would be awesome to see. And this must have been painful for Zevon to deal with. His label, Virgin, dropped him before he even went out to promote the album. So he had to go out and promote the album and tour behind it and still play nice with Virgin because <laughs> they were still paying for this stuff, but he knew that they had dropped him. And also new newly found sobriety, so I'm sure that was working really well for... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Poor guy. Any closing thoughts on Transverse City? Just overall, I think a really solid album. All right. We're going to take a quick break. So sit tight, and we'll be back in just a bit. 
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, so now we're going to actually enter the 1990s proper with the next album that had Warren's name on it, at least somewhere in the credits, Hindu Love Gods, which was released in October 1990. If that phrase sounds familiar, that's because that was the name of the band that Warren was in with most of the guys from R.E.M. in the mid-80s. R.E.M. was basically Warren's house band for the Sentimental Hygiene album. And they toured together a little bit in the 80s, particularly when Michael Stipe stepped away from R.E.M. for a bit there. It was kind of this cool point in music history where this young, up-and-coming band was backing up an established artist they had a lot of respect for. And I think it was a good pairing for that time of the mid-80s. But it was also, like, at the exact point of where these two artists were crossing each other in, like, any realm of what you would call mainstream success. So, when they recorded Sentimental Hygiene, like most recording sessions, these guys recorded a bunch of other different tracks. At the time, mostly just for fun, the vast majority of which was never meant for any sort of commercial release. So you just had a couple of these demos that were left over from the Sentimental Hygiene sessions of Warren and the guys from R.E.M. backing them up, and their covers largely of old blues songs. 
In the aftermath of Warren getting dropped from Virgin, his manager, Andy Slater, was trying to convince Irving Azoff to sign Warren to Azoff's new label. It was an indie label called Giant. And basically, Andy was kind of dangling these tracks with the REM guys to say, hey, we can put this out right now, just sign Warren. Irving took the bait, and they put this album out, much to the dismay of not just Warren himself, but all of the guys at R.E.M. who were in a much better place in their career in 1990 and felt absolutely exploited by the move. They felt that an artist who they loved and had a lot of respect for, and they didn't really blame him for it, but they felt his management was exploiting their newfound success. You know, if I'm an R.E.M. at that time, I'd be probably awfully pissed about that, too. No, I, I would be as well. What I find so interesting is that critically, it actually was received relatively well. I feel a shortcut to good reviews is covering old blues songs. And, well, not all just old, old blues songs. I mean, he also had Raspberry Beret, which is probably the best track on the album. Absolutely uh, the best track on the album. Yeah. That was done by a suggestion from Andy Slater, who I just mentioned. And I think... That recording was probably what sold the project as a whole because that was eventually released as a single. It blipped onto the mainstream rock charts which was kind of just enough for Warren's new label to actually sign him and agree to a, a three-album deal. And I will say, I don't dislike that cover, actually. I, I don't really like Hindu Love Guns as an album, but I do like the version of Raspberry Beret. I think there's nothing that is really there that I truly dislike. I think the issue is that there's not a single cover on that album that I prefer to the original. Sure. This might be the only album of Warren's that overall I would give a thumbs down to. Just because, again, nothing egregious, nothing grated on my ears. It's kind of like when we, we decided not to talk about that album called Dylan from like 1973 that was just all those demo scraps that wasn't ever supposed to be put out. I feel the exact same way about this album. It's yes. not really worth talking about too much. But we need to because it is part of the story and it is the main reason why Warren was able to release his next couple of records. Oh, and then the kicker from that story. After the project was released, Irving Azoff then bypassed Andy Slater and convinced Warren to fire him, and he installed a new manager for Warren, a guy named Peter Asher. And this happened while Andy Slater was in rehab. Jesus. And uh, to remind everybody, Andy Slater was basically the guy who absolutely rescued Warren's career. He's the guy who put Warren in touch with the guys from R.E.M. He's the one that managed him through sentimental hygiene. He drove Warren to rehab himself. You know, he, he, he was one of Warren's great advocates. But this shows the power of someone like Irving Azoff, who is, again, one of the absolute titans of the industry. If he tells you to do something... You do it. And to introduce Peter Asher, I have a quote from him from I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which is the book Crystal Zevon put together about Warren. This is a quote that Peter said about Warren. I enjoyed Warren's conversations, 
But then he would always say something disconcerting, and it would be one of those moments where you weren't sure if he was kidding or not. He would say something pretty outrageous, but totally straight-faced, and it would be something where most people, you'd be sure they were kidding. But if it was Warren, you'd kind of go, internally, is he kidding? You didn't know. There'd be these moments where you'd be looking in his eyes, thinking, am I supposed to laugh now? Or does he actually mean this outrageous thing he's just said? <laughs> How great is that? So, we, I mean, obviously, you don't know anybody like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see why you've taken to this project as well as you have. Yeah, I've taken this even far, probably far harder than I should have. <laughs> and- all right. Well, the first album that Zivon released under his new management was a record called Mr. Bad Example, which came out in October 1991. This was presented as a back to basics record. The idea here was we were supposed to bring him back down to earth away from this sci-fi shit. And they wanted him to release like a folk singer songwriter record that would harken back to his days with his 76 debut and his uh, 1978 Excitable Boy album. That was what they were trying to recapture. And I think, to his credit, he gave like a 1990s version of that sort of music that he had released in the 70s. I will say it's not nearly as chaotic as some of the stuff we talked about from back then. But I will say the title track is absolutely hilarious. I think that's among some of the funniest stuff he's ever written. I started as an older boy Working at the church Learning all my holy moves Doing some research Which led me to a cash box Labeled Children's Fund I'd leave the change and tuck the bill inside my cummerbund. I am particularly taken by Searching for a Heart, which is what the album closes out on. I think that's one of his most beautiful songs. And I'm searching for a heart Searching everyone They say love conquers all You can't start it like a car You can't stop it with a gun I will say, and you'll cringe at this, but the lyrics on that one remind me just a little bit of another song about searching for a heart. And I'm talking, of course, about Don Johnson's Heartbeat. Do you know that song? Yeah, I, I hate you for saying that. <laughs> You're taking, I'm looking for a heartbeat. Yeah. Versus a song that says something as beautiful as, you can't start it like a car, you can't stop it with a gun. Yeah. About love. Well. That's beautiful, Joseph. You know you know what Don Johnson says? It, I don't care what John, I don't care what Don Johnson says. How, how does it go? It's like, uh, I don't care what you say, you can give it away, your money don't mean much to me. Come on. Does that not uh, blow your mind? It's, it does not blow my mind. <laughs> what blows my mind? Darkness in the morning, shadows on the land, certain individuals aren't sticking with the plan. Which is one of the most roundabout ways of saying, like, you're walking out on our relationship, you're doing things that are not, you know, it's it's a, I, to me, I agree with you. It's an absolutely beautiful song. 
I am, of course, having a lot of fun here with the, the Don Johnson stuff. That's all in jest. No, you love him. I, I do unironically <laughs> love that song, Heartbeat, by Don Johnson, but comparing it lyrically to Searching for a Heart is egregious, and I hope all of you listening have not unsubscribed from this podcast. <laughs> Please keep in mind I make jokes like this from time to time. <laughs> Just feel the need to insert Don Johnson into virtually everything. If I can bring him up, I'm going to. I know. Him. No, I know. <laughs> you guys can't see him, but he's he's wearing a uh, an all white suit with oh, yeah. a pastel t shirt and uh, loafers. No it's, socks. It's no no no. You don't put socks on with loafers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the rest of the album goes, I sort of feel like what you were saying about Hindu love gods. I did not dislike anything. I heard here, but I will say I listened to this album like three times in two days and I did not connect with a lot of it. And I have a problem kind of like identifying which song is which. And then when I do hear it, it's just kind of like, oh, it's it's all right. I, I don't know if it's because it lacks that sort of chaotic energy that we found on those albums he did in the 70s and early 80s. But this one felt a little weak. I Totally agree with you. Yeah. I don't love the album. And uh, the, the song Susie Lightning is absolute hot trash. And <laughs> I will fight anyone who says different. Susie Lightning I fight Warren because I've well, been quoted saying that's one of the best songs he ever wrote. Well, I, he's very dead, so I won't <laughs> be fighting him. Uh, but I would fight him if he were alive. Okay. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's just such a absolute disaster of a song. I think across the board, lyrically, musically, it's just maudlin and gross. Like this is weird. I will say I did like the song Renegade. And a little problematic, I suppose. It's definitely got like a subtle Rise Again vibe to it, but I think it's almost the counterpoint to play it all night long. We ain't seen no reconstruction here. Just the scorched earth all around. And the high school band played Dixieland while they tore our tattered flags and banners down. Where do you think that came from? Is this because he likes writing songs about, like, military action? I think what he was doing was, and when you get lyrics like, we ain't seen no reconstruction here. Yeah. I think what he's acknowledging is the fact that there is a very real problem in, like, the rural American South with finance. It really, it's interesting that he chose to do it that way. And also, I think there is a certain admiration on Zeman's part as somebody who lived the kind of life that Zivon did as a very individualist. Yeah. Um, I think there's a certain admiration for that that concept of that rebel thing. It, is it problematic to use the vernacular or the imagery of, mm-hmm. uh, of the American South Confederacy or whatever? Uh, yeah, absolutely that's problematic. Right. And we've talked about this in other podcasts. It's, yeah, it's, it's totally problematic. But I kind of get it, and I think in the in the early '90s, maybe it was viewed as like less problematic. Oh, I think that's true too. Yeah. I mean, especially when you have—is that Hank Williams Jr. who has the song "The South Will Rise Again"? If the South would have won, we'd have had it made. 
I'd probably run for president of the southern state. Probably. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a Bocephus thing. I mean, there there were there were tracks like that were yeah. that were explicitly Charlie Daniels had music like this that were explicitly about this southern sort of revisionist history and and resentments left over from the Civil War. I also don't get the sense that Warren's coming from that perspective because he, he doesn't have that background. No, he's from Chicago. He's a Chicago right. guy. You know, he's a, he's a Chi-Town boy. I mean, it definitely, it, you don't get the sense that it's explicitly that way. Sure. But I think he's using some of that imagery and some of the ideas of being against the the, the mainstream. Sure. And I get, I get it. But I think it's a level of, like, cosplaying. Is this another character? Is this like him doing the Envoy it, with James Bond? It, yes. Okay. I think it could be that, absolutely. Sure. Yep. Well, one thing that it explicitly was, was a flop. Because <laughs> this album didn't even meet the low expectations that Azoff's new label had for Zevon. This was a total dud of a record. And that sort of changed their strategy of what they were going to do for his, his next release, which became Learning to Flinch in April 1993. His label decided instead of paying for studio time, they would send him out on the road because the only way he could make any money was to tour pretty much nonstop. And they decided, well, let's do a live album because there was some new technology that he was able to use. And basically in like 91, 92, when he was touring, they recorded every single show. They recorded like a hundred shows and they picked the best tracks of those recordings and put together a live album called Learning to Flinch. So every track on Learning to Flinch is a live recording from a different concert. And these are also all acoustic songs because the tour they sent them out on was minimal. It wasn't a total one-man band, but it, it was a very small show because he literally could not afford a band. So he had to do these acoustic shows. Right. Let's talk about the music that is on Learning to Flinch. It's mostly a greatest hits record, of course, but there are some new tracks here. To me, at least, it was a surprisingly decent album given it's not particularly well regarded. Yeah. I think your opinion on it might be influenced on whether you had seen him on this tour versus whether you had seen him in the past yeah. when he was, like, drinking. Because in the last episode, we talked about Stand in the Fire, which is one of the most crazy... That is a rager album where he's all over the stage. He's singing at the top of his lungs. He's, he's out of control. And that is wild rock and roll, and that's awesome. And now here you have him not all that much later in a very low-key, I'll say trendy sure. uh, type of record that I think maybe a lot of his older fans were like, what the hell is this? Well, he's even got, like, I think the goatee and, like, the ponytail. Exactly. I mean, it's a very early, mid-90s sort of look. Do we talk about the indifference of heaven now, or do we talk about it on Mutineer? We'll talk about that in just a bit. Before right. we wrap up on Learning to Flinch, I will also say one of my favorite songs of his, Jungle Work. That does not change. I love his version of Jungle Work on this record, too. He nailed it acoustically. Yeah. 
And it's such a weird song when you think about it to do in a live setting acoustically. Yeah. And he nails it. Credit to him for that. It was that was yes, it's a great version of it. And it makes me think that if you had seen him for the first time on this tour and didn't have any hang-ups about seeing him in his like drinking years, I bet he was still a pretty good show to see. Right. No, totally. Also, right. nice little treat. The version of Werewolves of London on this record recorded in London. Oh, that's nice. Come on. So, now let's get to the record that you have been chomping at the bit to talk about <laughs> since before the last episode we recorded. <laughs> this is Mutineer. It was released in May 1995. This album was recorded in his home studio, which is another downsize. So again, his label very frustrated with the fact that no one is buying his records. He's frustrated. They're trying to find different ways to get his product together. And a very affordable way for him to do it was to record it in a makeshift studio that he had set up at his place. He was inspired by Neil Young's extremely elaborate home studio that he had visited. Obviously, he wasn't able to put together what Neil had, but what he had was serviceable, and it worked. And I will say, for a record that was, again, recorded at his home, it doesn't sound bad at all. It sure as hell sounds a lot better than Hindu Love Gods, and I mean that specifically about the production. So, this record opens with a song called Seminole Bingo, which, much like the opening track of Mr. Bad Example, one of the funniest things he's ever written. The whole album, it's considered to be maybe his worst work by most people. And to me, I think what it stems from is the fact that up until this point, he had had the backing of huge artists. Yes. And great production. And here he was in a studio of his own construction, to your point, without any really, I don't, those are big celebs on this. Correct. This was totally absent of the heavy hitters he, he brought in in the past. I, I think it's one of the most intimate and best albums he's ever made. So let's talk about some of these tracks, because this is an album that really stuck with you. And I, I don't think you're wrong for it, because there is some of his best work here. Once again, we have, I'd say, a very personal album. He's speaking from the heart on this record, and that definitely comes through in the lyrics. Particularly in the song, Something Bad Happened to a Clown. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm being half serious here. What a title. Someone lost their squirting rose. There's his red nose on the ground. No one's seen his painted smile. He's been gone for quite a while Something bad happened to a clown Something bad happened to a clown And what about the lyrics? Yeah As the, he's, he's basically just describing like what is a, a, basically like a crime scene <laughs> Where it's like, no, he's got a red nose We got, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious It's absolutely, it's, he's back to the, I think, a level of wit That maybe has been lacking in some of his other work up until this point Again, it's Zivon always somehow being able to figure out 
how to work your both intellect and emotions in a way that I don't think any other artist does, I'll be honest with you. No, I think that's correct. Yeah. And even the music, it's so per- it's so on point. The music's so weird. Uh, in that it's song. got that circus, yeah. herky jerky kind of thing. Yeah. The music sounds like it comes out of one of those one-man band instruments, whatever that's called. Uh, or, or one of those novelty pianos with the squeeze box parts yes. of it. Yeah. Yeah, my note here was appropriately bizarre music. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to a couple of the other tracks here. Another standout, at least for me, is The Indifference of Heaven. You mentioned that one showed up uh, initially as an acoustic ballad on Learning to Flinch. I'll say it again and again. The man writes beautiful lyrics, and this is another example of that. We contemplate eternity beneath the vast indifference this is definitely one of my favorites from the era perhaps the highlight of the album what do you think about indifference of heaven it's become through the course of listening to zivon's music for for this podcast it's certainly one of my now i think favorite songs of all time oh wow and even the references to bruce springsteen and and billy joel yeah hit so well but the, the that's just funny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just some lyrics in there. I mean, gentle rain falls on me, all life folds back into the sea. We contemplate eternity beneath the vast indifference of heaven. That's fucking beautiful. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? That's a gorgeous line. Like, it's a go- come on now. It's so weird that of all the albums that he ever released, this one sold the least and yeah. is... Uh, largely not remembered particularly fondly when he's living up to any expectations that you you might have, at least in regards to the standard for the lyrics. Another track on here with equally good production, equally good lyrics, the title track. Oh, yeah. Dylan's favorite track on the album. That's right. After Zevon passed away, Bob Dylan honored him by playing, of all the songs in Warren's discography, Mutineer. Yeah. What's interesting for me is I think Dylan is a more... His approach to lyrics is different than Zevon's. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, Mutineer really stuck with me. I love that song. It's kind of almost like a Buffett song. Oh, yeah. In some ways. I mean, yo-ho-ho to bottle around. I mean, it's a, got a very Buffett vibe to it. Who Dylan also loves. And he loves Buffett. And I will say, Mutineer, <laughs> great name for an album. Oh, yeah. You know, Warren's album title game is elite tier. <laughs> Stand in the fire will always be. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Bad Example. I mean, that's fun. That is fun. Right. So let's talk about a couple of the other tracks here, because I, I will say I'm not as high on the album as you are. There's a couple here that I'm not particularly crazy about. What was it? Similar to Rain? I think that's yeah, it's a little bit maudlin. Yeah, I think that one sucks. And then there's another one called Poisonous Lookalike. Now, let me tell you my experience with Poisonous Lookalike. I was listening to this in my car, and I initially misheard the lyrics. And for a moment there, I thought he meant the lyrics as in he was referring to himself as a Poisonous Lookalike. And for a brief moment, I thought this song was about him looking at himself in the mirror and saying, you know... What have you done to her, speaking of the woman he loves, you know, like, sort of saying, like, this relationship turns him into someone he doesn't recognize, and dealing with that. Poisonous lookalike, 
You're not my girl Poisonous look-alike What have you done with her? I was wrong. He's not singing about that. He's basically singing about that as in the woman in the relationship is the poisonous look-alike. He's yes. yelling at her. He's saying to the woman, what have you done with her? And I guess this is unfair because I was running off an assumption I had made up in two seconds by listening to the song. But to me, that was disappointing because I've heard this song before. Not this one, obviously, but I have heard songs where the narrator is bitching about how the woman he is in love with he doesn't recognize or has double-crossed him or has treated him badly. This is such a just crybaby of a song that I've heard from so many other artists in more effective ways, and I felt this was honestly a little below. I thought the lyrics were like below what you would have for an expectation for him. I totally agree with you. I think it's the weakest song on the album. But the only thing I'll give, I will give Zevon. Yeah. There is a few lines of self-reflection yeah, within, okay. within the song, which is, you treat me like a criminal, you keep telling me I'll have to change. Baby, that would take a miracle. <laughs> which to me sure. is at least him being able to look in the mirror and be like, you both know that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I do, I do appreciate that. I can absolutely get on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give him that. But I agree with you on literally everything else you said. I yeah. totally agree. It's played out. We've heard it. The song is weak. And it's usually, I would say, a lame trope when other artists do it, too. I mean, like, this is such a common trope for artists to grind their relationship acts yeah. with. Against, honestly, whoever he's singing about doesn't get a response. We don't get to hear her side of this song. A song from an artist, male or female, that is bitching about your ex-partner with no introspection and no opportunity for that person you're bitching about to respond is boring because you have this platform to grind your axe and put your shit out there with no opportunity for the other to respond. I, I'm going to test you here, though. Because you know what? Zevon does have an example of a song that's like that. Okay. That is lyrically masterful, I think, and okay. it is an absolute classic. French Inhaler is fucking great. Okay. And that is absolutely about Crystal Zevon, I believe. And it is, I think, one of his best works. And even his son and Crystal Zevon, I believe, have said, they're like, yeah, this is a great fucking song. Well, then I guess the expectation... <laughs> You just gotta be good with it. You have to be right. a true fucking artist. This song did not reach the levels of artistry that we have come to expect, at least lyrically from Warren up to this point. Would you? I would 100% agree cool. with that. If you're, yeah, if you're gonna go that route, then there's an expectation that you absolutely fucking nail it and impress us. And this one doesn't do it. 100%. Okay. I really wanna feel your hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want to feel the pain and what this person's done to you. I don't need some maudlin shit about, like, uh, you're, you're like an imposter. Or right, 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 right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally get it. I yeah. totally okay, get it. hey, that's good. We drilled down on something. We interrogated that. Okay, see, this is the good stuff that you get <laughs> when you come and check out this podcast, people. Where else are you going to get this? <laughs> anyway. All right. Let's go ahead and talk about it. Monkey wash, donkey rinse. Monkey wash, donkey rinse. Going to a party in the center of the earth. Monkey wash, donkey rinse. Honey, don't you want to go? 
just gonna say it. What are we gonna? What are we gonna? You okay. can start. <laughs> okay, I'll start. It's your podcast. You'd be embarrassed. <laughs> In the book, I'll sleep when I'm dead. One of Warren's ex-girlfriends says that the lyrics on this song are vaguely about Warren's OCD around doing laundry at their local laundromat. I'll be honest, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. There was another explanation in the other book, Nothing's Bad Luck, but that was even more nonsensical. What was that explanation? It was something about the REM guys. Something about their backstage pass badges. Okay. Vague and not clear, and something about Warren getting hooked on a phrase. And I'll be honest, if I didn't see this video that I'm about to play a clip from, I guess I would just kind of shrug and accept those at face value. But instead, I am going to play a clip of Warren's guitar player, a guy named David Lindley. He did a live solo show in May 2014 at Shank Hall right here in Milwaukee. He played this song, Monkey Wash, Donkey Rinse, and recounted the meaning of the lyrics behind this song before he played it. So I'm going to play what David says and content warning here, this is very R-rated. Before you do, yeah. I just need to say, shout out to Shank Hall, because apparently, according to Lindley at least, one of Zevon's favorite venues to play at. Oh. He says that in the either that clip or when he does Indifference to Heaven, he, he talks about that Zevon apparently loved Milwaukee and loved Shank Hall, so good for Shank Hall. Absolutely, totally second that. So, yeah, here's David Lindley explaining the R-rated, extremely gross reasoning behind the lyrics on the song, Monkey Wash, Donkey Ritz. This song is about a thing that goes on in the square in Marrakesh that Warren went to see. Some friends of his took him to see this, this event. The song is called Monkey Wash, Donkey Ritz. And the event was uh, a donkey and a monkey in the square in Marrakesh. And they led this donkey out and the monkey was riding its back. And the donkey and the monkey are very, very, very close friends. Such pals they are. What the monkey does, the monkey climbs underneath the donkey and starts massaging the donkey. Vigorously massaging the donkey. And the donkey loves it. He just loves it. He loves this. He loves the monkey for doing it. The monkey loves the donkey. And here it is. And Warren's seeing this. He's watching this. And of course, the donkey comes to the inevitable conclusion and covers the monkey with, with donkey essence. And Warren said, he described it to me, he said, that's when I knew mankind was doomed. <laughs> when I saw that. Well, that was fucking disgusting. Well, I mean, what I love is the, the line about, uh, it was like, what is it? Is it that point that I realized mankind was doomed? <laughs> Which is such a fucking Zevon thing to say. Yeah. it's so, But also, like, so apt. Right. If he actually witnessed that, I can see where you'd walk away and just be like, well, yeah, I guess <laughs> that's why civilization's going to fail. Uh, 
you know, if, if there had been anything in these books that gave some sort of clear idea of what these lyrics were actually in reference to, I would have sort of written this off as, like, David Lindley being, like, sort of a goof. But no, there's nothing out there that I think counters this. Well, I had, no, so I had my own interpretation of this song. Okay, go prior ahead. Prior to finding out the Lindley explanation of it. And I honestly, I trust Lindley's sure. interpretation of it. And I actually don't think it's entirely different than my own. His is just, it's a more literal thing. And I think Zevon took it a little more metaphorically. Monkeys and donkeys historically, most cultures are not considered to be what's called, like, clean animals. Sure. You don't usually eat monkeys or donkeys. They're kind of, they fit into that realm of an unclean animal. Yeah. So, for me, the concept was you're trying to literally get clean or be rinsed by what are religiously unclean animals or spiritually unclean animals. Oh. And it fits the rest of the lyrics as well, because we're going to a party at the center of the earth, monkey wash, donkey rinse, honey, don't you want to go? That was always my interpretation of the song prior to understanding that it's about a monkey jacking off a uh, donkey. (laughs) Look at us. Both both of us having moments where we interpret a song, at least for a moment, (laughs) then find out, nope, totally wrong. (laughs) I I definitely feel like mine had a more valid uh, potential, at least, uh, explanation. I really went in there and then found out, like, no, it's literally a donkey show. It's a monkey getting donkey cum all over it. Great. Yeah. Charming. (laughs) Hey. Remember what I said earlier about what other podcast are you going to get this material? <laughs> Come on, baby. <laughs> this is some stellar content, brother. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this up. Any final thoughts on Mutineer? It might be my favorite of his albums. And I, and I know that that's a weird flex. I know you don't necessarily feel that way. It's just, for me, it's a guy of a certain age looking at his life and, and making a very personal album. And I think maybe I like it more because it is kind of the Dark Horse contender in his catalog where... It's so underappreciated. I just think all it would need on it, honestly, is Seminole Bingo, Monkey Wash, Donkey Rinse, and uh, which I I love that song. Yeah, I don't yeah. care. It's a great song, yeah. even if it is really about what, the, what, what it's, it's, about. it's about. And uh, The Indifference of Heaven. I think you just need those three songs on that. Title so, track? Oh, and Munir. Yeah, yeah. Munir's okay. great. But honestly, just those three songs would be enough for me to say it's an absolute classic. But then you get... Something that happened to a clown, and you get, you, you know what I'm saying? Like you, yeah. you get these other little gems as well that I just to me make the album. The highlights are enough to put it in the upper echelon yes. of Zevon's. It's enough to make up for uh, similar to rain, similar to rain, or yeah. Okay. All right. So as an addendum to that story, there was more commercial fallout. because, as I mentioned earlier, this album sold worse than literally everything else he's ever released. His manager, Peter Asher, who again was appointed to the job by Irving Azoff, quit to take a job running Sony. So that's an understandable. He didn't quit out of like anger with right. Mia Warren or anything. He had a good opportunity. But this, again, meant that Warren was going to be without management. And you can bet his label dropped him. But that was not only because of low sales. This indie label giant had not been a success as a whole and i believe they were going out of business around this time so warren was just in the wrong place at the wrong time so to wrap up the mutineer conversation i have a quote from warren himself about mutineer and this is what he said he said i intended mutineer as a gesture of appreciation and affection to my fans 
none of whom bought the record. <laughs> well, <laughs> if I had been alive, I would have bought the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, I shouldn't say that. If I had been, uh, uh, if I had had currency at right. the time, I was, you know, 10 sure. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, unfortunately, this would be his last release of the 1990s. Now, without a label and with without proper management, he was in financial dire straits, and he would pay his bills through the end of the decade, mostly by touring nonstop in very small venues that he was extremely unhappy about, and playing every artist's favorite thing, corporate gigs corporate gigs that's yeah. good you know it's funny i've i've actually been to do, do you have a corporate gig story because i have one too so you okay. tell me yours real quick so this was not i i forgot i forgot who the musical artist was there were two nights where we had at, with uh the company i work for we'll just say okay and yeah it's just the saddest thing there's nothing you can there's no joy you can see <laughs> And it was both, even when we was, there was, there was a one night was a musical artist. I cannot remember who it was, but they were, they're like a B-lister. Okay. I can't remember who it was. Here's my story. I used to work at a small uh, commercial insurance agency and they had a work party in which Sam Giannis from the Bodines. Oh my God. Played in our parking lot under this, this tent that they had rented. Okay. And it was, yeah, incredibly lame. No one really paid attention to him until he did Closer to Free right at the end of the set. I remember after he played, he kind of hung out at the little hangout where our company president and the VPs were. And he was just kind of making small talk with them. And you could see them ask him all the stupid questions. I'm sure he gets everywhere. Like, I remember one of them was proud that they asked him where they came up with the name Bodines. It's just like, this has got to be humiliating. But the funniest thing of that, the funniest thing of that night is that before he left, Sam noticed that we had this big sheet cake that only maybe a fifth had been eaten. And he asked someone at our company if he could take the sheet cake with him. And they just said yes. So my last visual was watching Sam Giannis go carry this fucking sheet no. cake out to his, the trunk of his car, put it in his car, and then drive away. It was the fucking funniest thing. And then as a kicker, oh boy, don't I appreciate this part of the story, is that several years later, Sam Giannis was accused of some of the most heinous sex offenses I've ever heard in my life. Which means that none of those jerks at that old place I used to work at can ever brag about this story because they had a fucking statutory rapist hanging out right. and, and playing their show. So that cracks me up. Thank you, Sam, for being such a piece of shit. So a couple things. This <laughs> kicked my fucking dumb, like, very yeah. inexact story out of the park. Two, I was going to mention that I've heard Sam Yoss is an absolute horrible fucking human being. Yep. And there you go. Three, now I'm a little worried about what happened to the sheet cake. <laughs> <laughs> I think that asshole ate that sheet cake in his fucking car by himself. <laughs> now, bringing us back to Warren here. Okay. One thing he did at the tail end of the 90s was that he showed up in a couple of comedies. He was in an episode of Suddenly Susan, 
with Brooke Shields and yeah. Kathy Griffin. So, Warren, was that really Neil Young playing on sentimental hygiene? To be honest with you, I don't remember. I was a little medicated during the 80s. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I'm on that album. He's actually really funny. I watched one of the scenes from that episode. I've never seen the show, but he has great timing. And then there's an episode of the Larry Sanders show that he yeah. shows up in. And the bit in that is that he doesn't want to play Werewolves of London, so he begs the producer not to make him play Werewolves of London. He goes out, plays a different song, and then, like, on the fly, Larry Sanders just casually asks him to play Werewolves of London live on TV. His reaction in that shot is so fucking funny. And it's just like, this guy had really good comedic chops beyond just his lyrics. He did stuff on Letterman as well. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. He did little bits on Letterman. But, I mean, even when you get just the... When he's just talking with Letterman off the cuff. And speaking of Letterman, in 1997, Paul Schaefer needed to take some time away to appear in, of all things, the Blues Brothers 2000 movie. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, he needed some time off from the show. It's worthwhile. And the way... They convinced Letterman to be okay with Paul's absence, because Letterman's very picky about Paul being away, is that they suggested Warren. And Letterman was like, oh, yes, absolutely. That'll be just fine. So you can find these episodes on YouTube. You can find their interactions. It's very funny. Paul Schaefer's band, they always played cover songs for the the, the, the bumpers, right? The commercial bumpers. They'd come back in, they'd be playing a cover of something, you know. So Warren was instructed to play cover songs. Well, eventually Letterman just overruled him and said, no, only play your songs. All Zivon, all the time. That was the order. <laughs> all right, real quick before we wrap up here, let's talk about a couple of versions of Warren's songs that sure were a lot more successful than his were around this time. In particular, I'm referring to a top five hit on the country charts. Terry Clark, Canadian country artist Terry Clark, recorded a cover of Poor Poor Pitiful Me in 1996. Big hit in that country world. much more inspired by the Linda Ronstadt version of the song, which was, you know, back from the 70s. That said, in his diaries, Warren says that he was, quote, elated to hear that version on the radio. I'm sure he was, because that would have been some badly needed money coming his way in 1996. Meatloaf covered Lawyers, Guns, and Money for his 1999 VH1 Storytellers live album. I'll be honest, I like Meatloaf, and I love this song. Not crazy about this version of the song. Agree 100%. Yeah. It's just, for some reason, way less than some of the parts. Because I also, we saw Meatloaf, one of the best concerts oh, yeah. I've ever seen, actually. It was great. He, he was one hell of a performer back in the day. Uh, when he was living. Yep. Uh, and uh, he, I think he pounded like six beers uh, <laughs> off stage and he had to sit down at some point. Yeah. But it's still, even even having to sit down for the last four songs, he yeah. still put on one of the best performances I've ever seen. But yeah, his Lawyer's Guns and Money uh, yeah, is not uh, wonderful. No, it, it didn't quite click. All right. 
Let's wrap it up with our favorites. I'm going to give you my top five favorite songs of the 1990s from our man Warren Zevon. In no particular order. They are Transverse City, Splendid Isolation, The Indifference of Heaven, Mutineer, and Searching for a Heart. Two from Transverse City, two from Mutineer, and one from Mr. Bad Example. Yeah, this is hard for me because I, I I'll be honest with you. I think I liked his '90s output more than you did. Okay, but I, what I will say is I so I think it's for me. It's definitely run straight down. Okay, splendid isolation, probably vast indifference or the, the indifference of heaven. Monkey wash, donkey rinse is a, a big one for mm-hmm. me. I just I love it. Whatever, <laughs> <laughs> I loved it before I knew what it was about. Okay, and I okay. still and I still love it. Well, that's fair enough. And then. I think Seminole Bingo is my dark horse. I okay. like it a little bit better than Mutineer. Mutineer's great, but there's something so that like there there are lyrics in Seminole Bingo that I don't think any other artist would ever come up with. Yeah, I'm a junk Bond king playing Seminole Bingo. That alone, brand new sentence. It's just yeah. No one's ever no no monkey has ever typed that even <laughs> after a hundred years of typing. <laughs> Yes, okay. Even uh, after even after, after washing the monkey yeah, and getting yeah. the, the donkey, yeah. Yeah, great. Jesus. <laughs> All right, well, uh, that, that'll do it for us here today. Coming up next in this series, Excitable Boys, is our finale, part four, Warren Zevon in the 2000s. In that episode, we will cover his last three records, Life Will Kill Ya, My Rides Here, and The Wind. We will talk about his famous final appearance on David Letterman's show. And that, like I said, will be our finale for this series. But after we've done that, I think we will definitely look into some potential guests who will come on the show to talk to us about Warren. Maybe that's someone from his personal life or maybe someone he's worked with or maybe someone who's wrote about him. I don't know. We have some options, but we will follow up on that a little later down the road otherwise as far as this show goes the next episode for me will be a solo episode about the band wang chung and we also have a few more interviews coming down the pipeline chris you can stop laughing already (laughs) no there's nothing wrong with wang chung i'm sorry (laughs) nothing wrong with wang chung before we get out of here i have to cite the two books i relied on for research for this project, first being I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon by his ex-wife, Crystal. And the other book, Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon by C.M. Cushions. Alright, Chris, any final thoughts before we get out of here? I was trying to figure out a way to work in another uh, pedo joke about why you tell, but unfortunately oh. I didn't know your work. <laughs> so. Alright, fair enough. <laughs> We'll say him and Sam Giannis must have went for dinner. There you go. There, yeah, there you are. Okay. Of the songs we had, what's playing us out, bud? You know what? I think Splendid Isolation. That's the one we should do, brother. Perfect. Play us out. Splendid Isolation. I don't need no one. Splendid Isolation. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. 
Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash play that rock and roll. Lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms as Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories of music from the world of classic rock. Splendid isolation It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.